This is Play Tessie episode 15, the Dustin Pedroia and Kevin Millar episode on the official podcast of Laser Shows in Dirt Dogs, also known as the official podcast of WEEI, home of the Boston Red Sox. We've got a good episode today. We've got Chris Cotillo of Mass Live joining us. Uh, it it was fun. It's a chunky one. I think it's the longest interview that we've done. I know that both Chris uh, Smith and Mick Adam were also chunky fellas, but this one is, I think it's clocked in at like almost an hour 20. So if if you're traveling for the holidays coming up, save a little something, like portion it out, be kind to yourself. Don't take all of it in at once, unless you got a long commute in the morning. Take it all in there. But we've there were a good amount of nuggets in here. Chris shined a whole lot on both his career and then also what the Red Sox are doing. Uh, so it was a bit all over the place, but hopefully a budding relationship between play Tessie and Chris Cotillo of mass live. So do you guys just want to jump in? Just jump right into it. Let's Start welcome on, Chris to the playpen. Oh, <laughs> let man. it rip. Baby. I don't like that. You were waiting on that. He's here. here he he's in the playpen. Once you hear, you can't leave. We are joined on play Tessie by the final the final third. I mean, we've had we've had McAdam on, we've we've had Smitty on, and now we complete the triumvirate of the Mass Live writers and the the hosts of the Fenway Rundown. Chris Cotillo, he joins us on the pod today. How are you doing, sir? It's like you have the frankincense and the myrrh already, and now it's time for the gold. So I was going to uh, say it's time for Jesus, but that's we can have myrrh as well. I wouldn't go that far, but uh, it's a it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, you know, I thought I should have gone first among the three of us in Mass Live because I am the man. But alas, uh, you saved the is, best for last. I guess that's you know the what? Case, yeah, you you coming in third here is still better than the Sox and Seth Lugo. So that's a win. Yeah, that's right. So. Start with like we, we got to introduce the people to Chris Cotillo if they have not already been ingratiated with the man. Um, so you got your start back in 2013 and a magical ride. And I mean, you're you're a kid in high school at that time. Uh, first of all, how do you actually break into it? Secondly, turning 18 just in time to actually start covering the World Series. I mean, explain all that. Explain how everything like got you to the point where you are right now. Yeah, well, to learn how to get sources and break stories, I'd recommend the Chris Cotillo Zoom Sports Friday there workshop. It there it is. There it is. But no, I just, I mean, as I, I always, you know, grew up loving sports, knowing I want to be in it in some form. Um, I started an anonymous Twitter account. I was, I had a burner before it was cool back in 2011, 2012, called At Trade Deadliner, which I always say was the nerdiest name of all time. Um, and from there, I basically was just this master aggregator, just grabbing everything that everybody was saying. It was totally plagiarism and copyright infringement and every other media law rule broken in the book. But I, uh, I enjoyed doing that. And then I had this kind of moment, I think, Christmas break, probably my junior year of high school, where I was like, well, how do these guys break stories? Like, who are they talking to? Um, who does Ken Rosenthal talk to? Who does Jeff Passan talk to? And like, how do they get their first source? And I just decided, like, I'm going to find out. And uh, I started DMing a lot of agents who had followed that account, that account, that aggregation account, got up to a few uh, thousand followers because people thought it was, you know, use, useful, just like MLB Trade Rumors or any of those places. I was then starting to do a little work for MLBDailyDish.com. May that site rest in peace at SB Nation, a great place. Um, and I just started reaching out to agents, 
players. Um, I remember I was so excited. Uh, the big time major leaguer followed me back then. It was David Price. I didn't realize how miserable he'd make my life on the beat. In a few years from <laughs> uh, but I was excited at the time. Um, nah, he was fine. He loved Smitty. So that's why I just Smitty talked to him. And I never really did. He was fine. Um, I didn't see him fight Drellick, but we've all wanted to fight Drellick. So I get it. Um, he was just upset. I, he saw someone so youthful that didn't want to play Fortnite with him. I think that's, that's what the that's issue was. Point. Um, so, you know, the guys like that follow me and some other people. And I just kind of DM'd and emailed and called and tried to find, you know, find out the scoop before anybody else. And, uh, I had a few people that thought it was cool. I was trying to do that as a high schooler. Um, and just about 10 years ago, I feel washed now saying this, but I had my two big, two big scoops the same week, um, in my senior year of high school, right around the winter meetings, Ricky Nolasco going to the twins. That was a big deal at the time. Uh, he signed for $50 million. His ERA was about $50 million over the course of that deal. Uh, and then Doug Fister signed or got traded to the Nationals, and I broke that back to back. And, you know, the, the big guys had to cite me and, and say Chris Cotillo had it first. And at that point, that's kind of where the career really launched and did that insider kind of part time thing for all of college. And then when I graduated, started on the beat where uh, I don't do as much of that now, where I'm not chasing down every minor going back to Drella. He, he calls me minor league signings McGee for chasing down every non-roster invite in the history of baseball in the last five years. But now obviously it's uh, a little, it's a little better work-life balance to be chasing, you know, one team on a full-time job than 30 on a part-time job. So, Hey, you have to start somewhere. Right. I was, it was a blast those days, you know, like, you know, in college, not going out one night because you know, I was trying to confirm a minor league deal and realizing God, I'm the biggest loser on this campus. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, like you, you have, to, you have to miss some great games that the Duke, uh, blue devils played because the biggest yeah. blue devil fan out there. Right. <laughs> That's right. They, uh, you know, oh, if you're, it's been a, a tough year for Duke fans. The Yankees didn't make the playoffs, but I guess the Lakers won. The <laughs> they had the, the in-season tournament. tournament. Yeah. yeah hanging a banner. And the Cowboys are doing decently. Thing, Dak yeah, Prescott, so, MVP. That's right. Yeah. So that's, that's huge. But Duke's already lost three times. So um, take that. So good time to be a heel. Uh, yeah. For right, right now, I'm uh, the setting. The, the one fun part of my upcoming vacation before I have to grade 100 papers next week is that uh, I'm going to Atlanta tomorrow to see them play Kentucky on Saturday. So nice. uh, nothing, nothing better than making and now that Coach K is gone, nothing better than beating John Calipari in my mind. And uh, so we'll be seeing that. Awesome. So Cooper Cooper Criswell will be tuned into that game as well. Oh, is he? Is he right. He's a Tar Heel? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, heck yeah. yeah. We got we got a little connection. I got the Cooper connection. You got the, the North Carolina connection. We, That's right. We got a we budding relationship like right a here. Trio a podcast. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he's, uh, I don't, he was in my grade, but I didn't know him at all. He was only there for a year. He was a community college transfer, but um there's a it's a long list of good red Sox relievers who went there daniel bard andrew miller so no so the legacy to be taken on uh speaking of some arms we we have some to talk about especially someone that might have met with the red Sox today uh i don't know who wants the actual first question at yamamoto someone someone can ask it i can do it i'll step up so not confirmed by any means because I don't know how much we all trust Carlos Baerga, but rumored deal that the Yankees have offered is nine for three Oh four, just based on nothing, but how you're feeling the kind of subliminal messages you've got. Is that a price tag 
that the Sox anticipated slash are comfortable kind of getting near? I mean, Carlos Baerga broke the Devers extension a year ago, yeah. I think. So he's, he, he uh, is actually, I mean, obviously well-connected after playing for so long and um, can break some stuff. Uh, maybe he started on a burner account too. I don't know. Um, but the, you know, I, I think that the more you hear the price going up, I'm sure that's very informed from everybody where it used to, everybody used to think, okay, maybe 175, 200 gets it done for Yamamoto. Then it was 225, then 250. And now you hear people talking in the 300 range. Um, and that's just because I think the market's coming together for him as well as it possibly could. I mean, you are, he's meeting with the richest teams, the biggest market teams. That's only going to help his price, right? The Mets are clearly very involved. The Yankees are clearly very involved. The Dodgers are clearly very involved. The Phillies meeting with him today, the Giants, like there's an, they're a big market team, the Red Sox, obviously that, um, that I missed that like is not meeting with them. I don't think so. So uh, the market's developing in a way where it's going to be a ton. Um, you know, I, I think there is a point where it just doesn't make sense to spend that much money on one player. I, I'm sure Craig Breslow feels that way as well. Um, Steve Cohen doesn't feel that way. The Yankees might not feel that way about this guy, but uh, I mean, I think somewhere around 300 makes some sense. Um, and, you know, if there's a lot of teams in that range then teams are going to have to really wow them with their presentations and we'll see where that goes. But, um, you know, the Red Sox have been so quiet on this. Uh, Reslow would not even acknowledge that Yamamoto exists really when we were talking to him the other day in, in Nashville. And so, you know, there's that secrecy element that I guess means anything's possible. Um, but when you kind of read the national guides and read the tea leaves there, are they going to beat out the Mets or the Yankees for this guy? I find it hard to believe. Um, and, you know, I guess uh, at this point, just kind of wait and see what happens. You just mentioned that the teams are really going to have to wow Yamamoto with their presentations. Is it a myth that having a guy like Yoshida, who he's friendly with, does that really matter? Because there's a lot of back and forth between Red Sox fans, whether it matters or not. want to hear from you on that. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the rumor was that the Dodgers brought – Mookie Freeman and Otani to the meeting. So Red Sox are going to counter with uh, Cooper Criswell, Rob Bradford. Uh, who else? You guys, um, I, I just, you know, like sausage King out on a Jersey in a, yeah, in Yaki. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, I think that I always think of free agent pursuits. We always hear these different, Oh, these are the factors he's considering, or these are the factors he's considering. Really, there's one factor they're considering, and it's the most amount of guaranteed money. And all these deals are guaranteed. Um, it is just the biggest paycheck at the end of the day. And a large part of that is the union really pushes that because the players want to set a bar for the rest of the players, the future free agents, all that type of stuff. And so, like, you know, if he's offered 300 but really likes the idea of playing with his friends or the weather um, for a team offering 210, he's not going to take the 210. You know, like that's just is not going to happen. So I find all that stuff kind of, you know, a dog and pony show in a way where, um, you know, we talk all the time. And, and last year, you know, we saw a couple of examples where like the Red Sox were basically neck and neck with the Rangers for Andrew Heaney and the Rays for Zach Eflin. They offered them the same or like a million more. And those guys decided to forego a million dollars to pitch in like in their hometowns. Right. That is where that comes into play. But it's not, you know, if the offers are, if there's a difference in the offers, it just comes down to money at the end of the day. And so, you know, you always anticipate the um, the highest bidder is going to win out. So, you know, does it help that he knows Yoshida? Um, 
you know, maybe. Uh, there also could be, you know, maybe he calls Yoshida and says, hey, what's it like? Be like, we had 92 rain delays finished and last, and they fired the guy who signed me. So <laughs> they could also be saying that. But, um, you know, I think that there's probably, you know, the familiarity can't hurt. You know, the Red Sox, I do think, you know, it's something that does matter. They have a history of really successful Japanese players that a lot of teams don't, you know, from, you know, dating back to even before, but Dice, even before then, but Daisuke, you know, Kojima winning titles and Koji, you know, having Yoshida here um, the last last year and for four more. So, you know, but the Dodgers have Otani who can recruit him too and probably more money. So, again, biggest offer is probably going to win out. But um, I've always wanted to sit in one of these meetings. It'll never happen to see what the pitch is and, um, you know, trying to sell them on the history of Fenway and the affordable rent in the Boston area. Who, oh who actually, like, pitches the – like, who leads point on that? Is it Craig? I uh, guess I mean it's they I the Yankees and I said this on the pod on the Fenway rundown great pod go listen today uh, that the Red Sox are doing themselves a disservice by not leaking out the details of their meeting because you know the Dodgers bring in Otani and Mookie and Freeman to sit there with Friedman and you know Dave Roberts whoever the Yankees bringing you know Boone and Cashman Hal Steinbrenner Matt Blake out there the Red Sox should if they're really going big on this meeting you know leak out how is it happening you know. We're having David Ortiz lead the meeting, you know, or we're having, you know, this guy come or, you know, try to take one out of the Celtics playbook and bring Tom Brady and Kelly Olenek to the meeting and see if that works with like they did with Durant. So um, I don't know. I, I think those things are fascinating. It seems to be kind of a regimented process where teams are going to the office of the Wasserman agency in L.A. and sitting down and pitching him. Um, I think, you know, that's obviously more convenient to have the teams come to you. I think if I was a free agent, especially a free agent who might not be familiar, and I don't know, you know, what Yamamoto's travel schedule in the past has looked like, but I'd like to see the different cities and the different options. I think the Red Sox probably don't want to bring free agents to Fenway in December. Um, I guess they can probably be like, you can want, hey, you can be one of 19 people here to watch BC against SMU in the Fenway Bowl at 11 a.m. on a Thursday. That might be a selling point, but um, I, I think it's a fascinating process. So some of the free agents passing sometimes leaks out like the binders that they have where like this is how we're selling our client like page one this is his batting average from last year like oh thank god you provided that for us because we couldn't have found it anywhere else on baseball reference or anything but um yeah i don't know it's uh i'm sure it's a it's a big dog and pony show and uh someone needs to write a book about how it all goes chris you you talked a little bit about uh i guess the reaction that, of, that fans would have if I guess if they leaked information, if they were a little bit more open about their process, I think if they, if they were more open about stuff like that, then like a Seth Lugo day, like yesterday wouldn't result in like the anarchy that it, that it kind of did. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious with, with it, how it's going right now, the day Yamamoto signs elsewhere, if that happens, I'm assuming that happens. That's where I'm at right now. The day that happens, I'm curious. Cause you're, you're pretty, you're pretty in the weeds on Sox Twitter. I think more so than, than most of the other people on the beat. I'm curious huge, how you yes, and it's a huge mistake. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious. How would you describe what you anticipate that day would be like better or worse than the day Xander left? I mean, I think, I mean, I'm just kind of reading the room of what Red Sox fans are thinking about with the situation already. And like, they've already resigned themselves to the fact that he's going elsewhere. So it's not going to be a huge hit. Um, I, I think if he does sign elsewhere and if he does sign with the Red Sox, which, you know, I think it's still possible, if not super likely, then it'll be a very pleasant surprise for Red Sox fans, I guess. Um, you know, like, I think that 
Red Sox fans to kind of answer the question more broadly on, on X or Twitter or whatever, um, they are just, and I know that there's been disappointment in the last few years of last place finishes. There's overreaction to things that haven't happened yet. That's like my favorite thing that's new and um, really, really popular right now on Twitter. It's like, well, they didn't get anybody. They're going to suck. They didn't sign. They said they were going to sign starters, and they didn't. And I'm like, it's December 8th you know, last week. <laughs> There's no one who signed the, the, star, the four or five top pitchers on the trade market haven't moved. Yamamoto hasn't signed. You know, Snell hasn't signed. Like, who, you know, they're just, well, they didn't get anybody. They're really going to start Valdez at second base? No, they're not. They're going to get somebody. You know, like, I don't, that's why I have my line that I've been tweeting out. I will, you know, you can register this complaint with me the day the pitchers and catchers report. Because that's when, you know, or you can complain about the deadline two minutes after the deadline happens. Is it fair to complain about the deadline they had when Luis Urias was the only guy they got? Yes, after the deadline happened. But three days before, we didn't get anybody. You don't know that yet. Um, and so we don't know how Brizzo operates. So maybe he'll make some big moves. Maybe he will, you know, go out and sign Snell. Who knows, you know? Um, and at that point, you can react. And I think another thing in Sean McAdam, the great Sean McAdam and I were talking about this on our pod today and yesterday, like there's also this like kind of pissing contest of how negative the reaction can be no matter what happens. With Seth Lugo, if it was either that's all they, they, they okay, option A, they sign him and the reaction is they sign that guy, that's the solution and they paid him $15 million a year. I hate this. They don't get him. The reaction is, they get outbid the Royals for Seth Lugo? I wanted him so bad. And it's just, I think that's what Twitter creates is the echo chamber of trying to out-negative each other. Um, so, so how, yeah. how often are you it's happy to see Lou? Like, Lou's been dunking on a lot of people during this offseason, and it's been kind of nice because I, I feel that way where people are just mm-hmm. like knee-jerk reaction just to be knee-jerk reaction. Mm-hmm. And I'm kind of like, well, there's like, I don't know, go back and just start watching like old Red Sox games, like entertain yourself right. that way. But it, it's got to be a little cathartic when you see the, like Lou start doing that. And you're like, oh, God damn, that's, I know how well <laughs> that feels. Um, I don't, you know, like I just try to, my Twitter strategy is for negative negativity and people giving me shit or whatever. I just correct the grammar mistakes because they're always there. You know, that's I think number one. It's just a hundred percent guarantee. Or just come up with transparency or facts of like I don't get too worked up about it personally. Like, you know, um like, you know, I was pissed at the Red Sox last week for the first time. I had the f- first time in a long time that I've had like a real feeling toward the Red Sox because they made the Verdugo trade within five seconds of Carolina against Yukon tipping off. And I just sat down at the bar. They made the trade. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. I didn't care where he went, who they got. I know I had to analyze it and I wrote about it, but it was supposed to be a relaxing night at the bar in, in Nashville. It was not. Went up to the hotel and wrote. And I just angrily like stormed up there like they really had to do this now. That's where I get fired up about things. So I don't take anything on Twitter personally, but I do try to like be sometimes a voice of reason. Like, you know, like again, you can complain about the offseason on February 13th. Um, or, okay, let's say Yamamoto, Snell, Montgomery, Giolito, Flaherty all sign elsewhere, and they're not going to, let's say, go out and get anybody in trade. All those guys go elsewhere. When the board's clean, complain. But now, you know, that's the thing. Who are we mad as Red Sox fans that they didn't get? 
Red Sox fans would have been pissed if they got Eduardo Rodriguez again. They would have been very underwhelmed by that, generally. Um, you know, like I said, some people weren't very high on Lugo. I think Nola, people wouldn't have wanted Sonny Gray because they don't think he could pitch in a big market. I think, you know, Nola is the one guy that I think fit well with an innings eater, big market, gamer, that type of stuff that would have really fit um, and kind of been that top rotation guy. Other than that, there's no one that's come off the board that I look at and think Red Sox fans should be up in arms about missing out on. Chris, from your perspective, do you believe that the Red Sox front office has like a gauge on the temperature of the room among the fan base? Because as we just discussed, it's it's hot, hot, hot. People are pissed before there's anything to be pissed about. Are they aware of that? Uh, that's a great question. And, you know, I, I'm not going to pretend to know Breslow as well as, you know, anybody because I've I literally introduced myself to him for the first time last week and you know I've not had time that much time covering him and all of, you know there's only been a couple of availabilities and stuff I think Hein Bloom was you know I think he was very aware of that how could he not be after the town hall last year and how could he not be you know just kind of seeing how things were um you know I always come back to this and you guys and anybody who has ever followed anything I've done since being on the beat knows that I complain a lot about John Henry and ownership not talking um, and so the thing that I always say on that is it's not a, I want the headlines out of John Henry thing. It's Sam Kennedy, you know, on my pod or on different times when he's talked has said, there's just this misperception that John Henry doesn't care about the Red Sox and is not in tune with fans. I know a great way to get to, to quell that misperception, right? Have him answer questions from us through the, you know, the liaison or the, the connection between the fans and, and the team. And so that question exists because they're not forward facing, right? Like that is why you ask that question and why it's a legitimate one. Um, I know Alex Cora is hashtag very online. He is constantly on Twitter and checking things and very in the know on what people are saying and, and what people are, um, you know, how people think about the organization. He always has been. I mean, he was a very active Twitter personality, media personality with ESPN before he, he landed back in a dugout. And, uh, he knows what's written. He knows what's said and, you know, keeps very close attention. I'm sure Breslow does. I'm sure other members of the front office do. And I know Sam Kennedy does. So they, they have to. Um, at the end of the day, that might not matter if, say, ownership has put financial restrictions. And maybe that's the case. We don't know. Um, you know, like, I think that there's, you know, part of it. I think the ownership does have a, a little bit of an attitude toward fans. It's like, we give you four championships. Is that not enough? Like, what else do we need to give you? And um, if they don't have that attitude, then it comes off that way because of kind of this, we're not going to address anything. We're going to be up in the ivory tower. We're not going to be super visible around Fenway. Um, and, you know, if they're spending, you know, $350 million on payroll and winning World Series, I think fans will let them get away with that. But now for the last few years, it hasn't been the case. And I think, you know, that it, it kind of rings hollow that they're not, communicating again my, my whole thing is it's not they're not communicating with us it's that they're not communicating to the fans and, and we happen to be the vessel through which that happens so i that sounds like, like i always i'm of the presence of mind of like when people say like sam kennedy doesn't care it's kind of like what business isn't going to like want to protect themselves and make themselves mm -hmm. look like a like they're not like that's the whole issue with the buying and selling and people get upset with like, Hey, why aren't you saying whether you're buying or selling? And it's like, what business is going to say, Hey, we're not going to have an attractive product. Like you don't want to buy into the product we're about to give you for the next two months. 
so that like that's what i never understand about like the appearance but i also understand the frustration of like yeah like i don't like martin perez like i didn't care when he walked like that that's a legitimate thing like if they had signed martin perez he did great for the rangers but if they had signed him back similar situation to what you look at with eduardo rodriguez it's kind of like well he's not the he's not the grand old starter that we were promised um right and it's do you ever like are there ever points where you kind of wish that you could like turn it off and be like that brain dead fan like we might be sometimes where you're just kind of like I want to separate it. I want to be like that fanatic or is it so much of, well, no, this is the most appropriate way to look at it. You have to take a step back and you have to look at it that way as yes, this is a business first before it's chasing championships. Yeah. I mean, I think the way I looked at it, I always look at it and you know, I to kind of tell the backstory when I was in first or second grade, I won the contest, the Red Sox biggest fan. There was a baked beans company that had a contest and uh, my mom wrote an essay in about how I, when we did a Fenway tour when I was three or four, I bawled my eyes out and refused to sit in the, the coolest part of the tour was the visitor's dugout. And I refused to go in because the Yankees had been there and I wanted no part of it as a three or four year old. And I was like the biggest fan, die hard, live and die with every pitch. And I sometimes think at this job when you're so, you know, jaded is not the right word because uh, you, I think it's kind of the opposite of that where you kind of gain a better understanding of how things work. You know, I've always said, you know, there could be a player who's awesome to me and makes my job easier and is a great guy. It doesn't matter what uniform he's wearing. I'm going to root for that person to do well. Like you really, once you get to know people and then there's people in the Red Sox who are very difficult, who, you know, you don't want to root for necessarily because that person makes your life difficult or they're just a bad guy. And that happens often. Um, and so I, I try at least through the coverage. And sometimes I think I come off a little like, you know, Hey, fan go away you don't know as much as i do which i'm never trying to do i'm trying to explain the things you know through the conversations i have with the organization um and i actually appreciate the brain dead fan thing that's your term not mine (laughs) based on the fact that i am one for other sports and other teams like i'm completely irrational about carolina basketball as i sit here with my jersey doesn't fit as well and i will see that's why i push i push back on you saying like sometimes i feel like like I am like saying like, no, like this is the correct way to look at it because as far, and this isn't to like bad mouth McAdam, but like McAdam like waxes poetically and he is like that columnist. Whereas you are kind of like a new age columnist. Like, like they're like the traditional bot, like Boston globe does not really exist anymore. Sorry, Dan Shaughnessy. And, And the way that most people access their print media is not really printed. It's on their screen and you carry almost like I, 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 fanboying here i love reading your articles because it is almost written not in tweet form but in the form that you are communicating with someone right in front of you the way that social media has kind of turned things and yeah, that's how i came up obviously so i don't know any other way i mean i think the, the goal that we have is to explain what's going on because we have access that nobody else does and i think that people underestimate that access you know all the time I think people like don't realize how informed some of the things that we have on the beat and the people who really work hard and do the, you know, it's not, you know, 5% of the conversations we have show up in quotes, right? Like if I'm writing something, it's because, and this comes over time. And I, again, I don't know Breslow, so this hasn't happened with him, but you know, you pull a player aside and you have a 45 minute conversation that it's all off the record, but you bank knowledge, you know, I, I mean, a great example of that, and I can kind of pull back the curtain now, um, 
in September of 22, last season, I had players who were talking to me and complaining and angry and talking about the shit show. I don't know if we could swear on here, but what oh, sorry. go for it. Right. The shit show that uh, Tristan Casas and his pregame routines and the yoga and the falling asleep in the clubhouse caused and that big uproar and that whole thing. And people and players were upset about it. And it was a big thing. And, you know, I had conversations with Haim about it. Hey, I heard this is going on. Like, yeah, you know, it happens. Young guys rubbing guys the wrong way and other. And so I had those conversations back in the fall. And so then when I got the spring training after, you know, maybe it cooled off for a few months, that was on my list of I'm going to go up to Tristan Costas and ask him instead of writing this kind of like according to anonymous sources, they all, you know, hated the way he slept in the clubhouse or did yoga, go up to him and ask him. And, you know, you guys know his personality. He was very willing to answer the questions and talk about how he grew from the experience and how, you know, ultimately if he produces, he's going to be able to do whatever he want. And that story, like carry the news cycle for a few days, like that wasn't like some, you know, some people what the Red Sox interpreted as, you know, Oh, this is a negative piece. You know, some people or you know involved with the team were saying there's no there's no need to you know bring what happens in the clubhouse out to the public. I'm like, no, that's actually kind of the job, and more than kind of. Um, and I thought, and that's kind of an example of like you hear things behind the scenes and kind of heard it was going on. And like, my goal is to tell the complete story. You know, later on, like there's things that with the Verdugo thing that I heard over time and saw and witnessed, and that I could really when I wrote the column. Ain't not angry writing because they traded them or because of the move again, because of the timing in the middle of a big game for uh, Carolina, I was up writing that. And like, I could put a lot of details and a lot of things in there that I had heard over time, um, you know, and, and just based on off the record conversations or how people act, or if you hear the same thing over and over and over. Um, and so like, I think just a long winded answer again, but you know, the, the, the readership or the fan base sometimes thinks like, the quotes are the only times that the team or the players or whoever is talking directly to you. And it's, you know, there's a lot of off the record on background conversations that happen every day. That's why it's important to be around the team. It's why we're so committed at mass live to traveling as much as we do, because I can be one of two or three reporters having the whole clubhouse. And all right, tell me about this, or, you know, this guy seems to be a pain in the ass. Is he actually, you know, like there's guys on the team that don't get along and there's, you know, guys on past teams that don't, you kind of get a feel for that. And, could paint the complete picture that way way more than just a quote or a press release could chris one question i had was that so obviously through mass lab we see kind of you sean smitty like all of like the off-season projections one thing that's been like a common theme since pretty much the end of the season Mm -hmm. is one of the two of you linking the red sox to mariners pitching Mm -hmm. and not even like tipping a hand of the thing, but just more so like everyone sees that Seattle has a plethora of young arms. They really lack bats in any trade with Seattle. Like what, whether it be for a Bryce Miller or Logan Gilbert becomes available is like a piece to that, a major league piece like Duran or like just like parameters of like, where do you see like a matchup with a team like Seattle just in the grand scheme of things? After my two-minute grandstanding answer about how everything is informed, I will say that the Seattle stuff is completely a guess and a prediction on my uh, my side. And I just think I've always said it, and I know Alex Spear wrote today that you know they were rebuffed in their attempts to talk to them about the pitching, which that's you know definitely true. What Alex writes is gospel. That doesn't mean that 
things won't change before opening day. Jerry Depoto always wants to trade. And, you know, I think they're going to get some crazy offers with so many teams needing pitching. And then I'm having that surplus. Um, you know, the reason I'm kind of so bullish on the fact that that's such a good fit is I'm not blown away by anybody in the free agent market, assuming they don't get Yamamoto, which again, not ruling it out, but assuming I'm not blown away by Blake Snell. I think there's durability concerns. There's command concerns, all that. Montgomery would be fine, but doesn't blow me away to the extent that one of those Seattle guys would, um, you know, and, and then you get into like that Giolito, Flaherty, James Paxton tier, which I don't think would fire anybody. I think Giolito is a good bounce back candidate. Um, and then if you look at this, the, the trade market, they're not going to go after one of these rentals like Glassnow or Bieber or Burns for a year. Like they're just not going to do that. They're not in a position where they want to cease even for two years. Like they want to bail out the trade deadline, right? That's, you're probably not going to do that. And so, you know, when they want controllable guys, if they lose out in the free agent guys, that is that group, Kirby, Gilbert, Wu, Miller, that makes the most sense to me. Maybe the Marlins pitching. Um, and, I, and you know, I, I don't know the answer to that question on what the return would be. Um, you know, I think Casas is probably a non-starter. Um, but I don't think Meyer would be at this point. I don't think Anthony would be at this point just because – uh, I, I just, you know, they have so much position player talent. They have to tip the scales. They have to balance it back a little bit. Um, you know, is it, would it have to be, you know, like George Kirk? I mean, these guys are controllable for like four or five, six more years, you know, and that is unbelievably valuable. You know, like it's, it's, I was looking at Gilbert's numbers today, writing about it. He throws 185 innings a year and gives you like a 340 ERA. Like that's a guy who's, you know, you'd have to give up. Meyer or Anthony for right like you figure you'd, you'd have to you couldn't just you know package uh, that uh, one fan thing that I always see is like well, what if you just you know you give them like and then it's like eight spare parts like well Reese, Reese McGuire hit 340 last year that was pretty good and then you have um you know if they if they well they're going to sign Tay Oscar so they don't need you know Ref Snyder we'll give them that, give them Ref Snyder and then Dahlbeck always gets thrown in despite him having zero oh, yeah. value whatsoever to these trade proposals and um I mean I think you'd have to give up one of your top guys, uh, whether it be Meyer or Anthony. I, I, Sean and I were talking yesterday on the pod about Teal probably being untouchable just because that that franchise catcher is so rare. I feel I feel like that you know tougher to get a guy in that spot than you know they've drafted high school shortstop for the last fifteen years. They probably have a pipeline of that, and they have story for four more years. So I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they dangled Meyer, um, you know, and and to me. You do that. You, I know that this guy has had a lot of hype, more hype probably than any prospect in the last few years here, fourth overall pick and all that. Like, if you can get Gilbert or Kirby, do whatever. That's what you need. You know, that's really what they need more than anything. Yeah, Chris, you, you just touched up on it a little bit, and I know uh, you said it on the Fenway Rundown, but I was curious if you could just go into a little bit about why you think Teal is untouchable. Like, you're, I feel like if you ask Sox fans, particularly on Twitter, you hear – it's a debate of Meyer or Anthony, Meyer or Anthony. And it's like, okay, mm -hmm. now maybe Anthony's jumped in. Who knows? I don't know. But then you guys come out and you, you kind of say that, you know, maybe Teal is the one who's the most untouchable. I'm just curious, like, did he show you guys something uh, when he was playing last year? I know he had a great debut, albeit yeah. uh, obviously shortened at the end of the season. But I'm just curious what goes into that mindset. I just think it's a scarcity thing with, you know, um, trying to find a franchise peace at certain positions like there if he is a superstar catcher who's like a five tool guy who can hit from that position and give you like basically i don't know the veritech comp will always be there or a guy that you know is is really really good it's tougher to find that guy than it is to find you know serviceable outfielders and if you look at the system there's not many 
you know, uh, there's not a lot of organizations that have, you know, the um, multiple really good catching prospects. But if you look at the Red Sox and what they have, you know, they really were able to trade Verdugo because they're confident in Abreu. They know they have Rafaela. They have Duran, who's under control forever. They have Yoshida for four more years. They have Anthony Cumming. They have Blyce, who's one of their top prospects, or Blyce. I always screwed up. Uh, you know, those guys are – you have six outfielders, right, that you think are pretty high pretty high on. In the infield, Devers is going to be there forever. Casas is going to be there forever. You have Story for four more years. You have Meyer, York. Uh, you know, I know these guys have struggled early on, but Mikey Romero uh, was your first-round pick a couple years ago. They're very high on Zanatello, who they got this year, Antonio Anderson. All, like, there's a lot of infield prospects, and I'm probably missing somebody, uh, that you figure can – you can cobble together in those two spots. And you, know, you see it every year too, I think, where last year there was, what, five, six franchise shortstops on the market with all those guys. How many times is a franchise catcher available? Um, not not really that often. Last year, you know, who's the, who's the best um, catcher on the free agent market this year? Like Mitch Garver, who doesn't catch? You know, those guys are rare. And I just Mark think – Martin Maldonado. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we're so close. Roberto Perez, no, he's off the market. Yeah. Um, just got a two-month catcher. That's and right. I, that was a mass live headline. What's the other one? He got the Four Wilson. Gold gloves. He's got the Wilson best defender. I don't know. I kind of learned about this yesterday, the Wilson yeah. best That's defender. That's a Woosox cornerstone right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hell he's, yeah. Which is, which is an interesting switch between him and Jorge Alfaro, who might be the worst defensive catcher to ever suit up in the majors. And – I'm going to make a bold prediction. If Roberto Perez gets to the majors this year, he's not going to airmail the airmail the ball to the warning track like our fallen friend Jorge. That was the best play that's a win. We that take that. That's a win. That, that yeah. was just that was that was the highlight of the season. Oh my god! Yeah. Do you think like we've just been like so broken that we just automatically hyped him up? Because I I think everyone oh, was high on him. Just yeah, just because like we were just like, oh, he's fun. Who is that? That be. I guess that's it's different. Yeah. Show me uh, who readership, is the readership numbers on the Will Jorge Alfaro opt-out stories were crazy. Um, <laughs> people, pe- people love people love hair. Uh, they love uh, burly kind of bigger guy. That's why hometown boys. So hometown boys. Uh, and they love power. So this guy hits homers, uh, goes crazy in winter ball, has cool hair. Fans, you know, fall in love with with that. Um, what are the top five tropes like that you know that like if you have one of these five tropes within an article, you know it's gonna be a Irish banger. name. Gotta be an Irish name. Oh. Versatility. Uh, I'm thinking for what fans love, you know, I always think and I you know, I know this is sacrilegious, but the most overrated player in Red Sox history is Brock Holt. And fans just oh. loved him so much. <laughs> For the versatility. He's out doing the Jimmy fun. How can you hate him? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's, that part's not overrated. That's good for him, um, playing wise. And you know, the the calls to you know, I can't believe they didn't re-sign him. Well, he was <laughs> also out of the game like a, an hour and a half after leaving the Red Sox. He like you know was never productive again. Getting off track. That's a utility guy versatility. Um, you know, shows a little bit of personality in post-game interviews, people like that. Um, you know, it's, there's always, you know, there's there's guys that fans, you know, fall in love with for no reason. And there's some fans, there's some guys that fans really should like and they don't, which I always find funny. Um, I always think back to, you know, not beating a dead horse for those who know me, but like 
the whole like Kike Hernandez is going to be just beloved by Red Sox Nation, and then he just wasn't for like three years. So, no. um, that there's some guys that you think are going to do it. I think Tyler O'Neill is going to be a fan favorite. You know who really should have been? I know he didn't play that much. Was Duvall? That guy had it all. Yes, perfect righty swing, southern twang, all fast. The way that the way that the Braves like let him go, and like they were all kind of like, "We're not mad at you for going. We just like appreciate everything that you did." I was so happy to have him here for that. He he's I gotta say like top five nicest people I've ever met in my life. Just the nicest person, always smiling. Like you know, you get bullshit cliches from players all the time trying to pump up teammates. But when Duran was like surging in the summer. And he was not hitting and he was not getting at bats because Duran was playing so well. I went up to him and was like, you know, is it, you know, on a one year deal? You know, I know you start off so hot to get hurt and have this guy basically be on fire replacing you and taking your at bats away. And he was like, you know, in this game, it's just, I'm not going to do the Southern accent. I had enough of that for a four year span <laughs> once. Um, the, like, he was like, you know, for, for guys in this game, there's a life cycle and I was that young guy once and for the future of this organization, Jaren's such a nice kid and just I can't help but smile when I see him, you know, performing, even if it means that I'm not. It's like I know you met rock. I know I knew he meant that, you know. No BS from him. He's a great guy. And I think he still fits here if he can play first base too. That was gonna be my question. Right handed bat, how how likely? What would you put the odds at for him returning? It's, it's all about like he played first base early in his career. Um Wow. If he can kind of play the Turner role from last year, I think I don't. They weren't open to doing that for some reason. Like last year, the core was very against it. Um, you know, he's obviously like thirty five, thirty six, but uh, Turner wasn't good defensively. You know, um, and so maybe him slotting in uh, as your they keep pumping up Dahlbeck as the guy who's going to have that role, which is inexplicable to me because I don't know how much data we do we need. You know, um, but no, just try the, try him out one more time. Let's just yeah. Chris, Why not? You'd be so it could change every what, time. Does he does he, does he have fifteen minor league options? <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, every like, time I have a, <laughs> like a trade with anyone involving a corner infield spot that I post on Twitter, I get like, "How about you give Bobby a shot?" I'm like, "What? What more yeah. do we need to see, man?" Sure, he's a great guy, but like, no, you know, you, you see, in Wista, he hits the train. You don't understand <laughs> that like, that true. puppy comes by fifty miles per hour and he's still able to place a ball on it. Yeah. Let me tell you. He hits the train now and he's, now, he's, Bobby now he's an outfielder. His, he also here's a hint people don't realize he also struck out like 40 percent of the time in Worcester against triple A pitching. So, yeah, so Chris, down. I got I got the stat up. He had the same strikeout rate in triple A as Jack Sawinski had in the major leagues, and they both led their respective league, but Bobby did it in triple A. So that's, I mean, what more would you need to see? So Bobby's, Bobby's triple A strikeout percentage. Had he just done that in the majors would have led the league. Yep. He would have been the exact same same percentage as Sawinski. What was it? Like 34, 35? I think it's 34 and a half. I believe it's in that range. Mid thirties. Don't worry though, guys, that's the guy who gets you George Kirby. So we're good. That's (laughs) cherry on top. Mm -hmm. Damn, I'll miss those uh, Dahlbeck and Duran trade conversations from last offseason. Durant, Durant's graduated from that now, but we'll always have Bob. Always have no, Bob in those times. And, and the other guy that people were, you know, let's just trade. Well, we got to throw in Jeter Downs. Some team's going to want him. Like, Jeter Downs hits like 100 at AAA. You know, like, why would it? That was last year was, you know, just depreciated value. It's, it's like I always say, you know, some Red Sox fans making trades is like, in fantasy when you put one of your bench guys in your starting lineup to try to fool one of your league mates 
You know, that's how yeah. Red Sox fans make trade scenarios sometimes. Yeah, one, guy one, of those... creeping... one guy who's creeping into that, like, territory of just being floated in every mock trade is Nick York. I feel like every mock trade I see on Twitter, somewhere toward the end, is, like, Nick York thrown in as, like, a former top 100 You're just guy. talking about Sammy. That's Sammy. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Like, Sorry, Sammy. Sense. I was talking about you. That, that's not, like, a guy you trade <laughs> for a superstar, but, like, that's a decent prospect that a team would be like, oh, okay. Yeah, I'd like to have him. He's not going to, you know, you know, tip the boat in any way, but that's, like, that's not, like... Throwing dolls. I get why you do it. He has value. No, he, has, he had a good year. He's like a little bit of a Howie Kendrick kind of profile, a little bit. Maybe that's his ceiling. But I sat next to Howie Kendrick at the Rule Five draft last week. Very exciting. <laughs> oh, yeah. Matt, wait. No, I was. Yeah, that's a headline, we had, right there. We had Howie Kendrick and Dave Dombrowski sitting right behind us. I know. I was doing my Dave Dombrowski impression. I was like, shit. He's like five feet away from me. <laughs> Can we hear it? Well. <laughs> I don't want to tip my hand too much, but we are going to go for some left-hand pitching. <laughs> <laughs> that's like that's like a 1950s stockbroker. Like a lunatic. Have you met David Dombrowski? That's what I mean. Like it fits his personality. Like that's yeah. just how he operates. He looks like that. It's it's I, how he presents I, he's, himself. He's a he's a great, very nice guy. So I I, uh, I liked I like I was only I covered him for like a year and a half, but he was you know I, there's some great uh, even before I was on the beat. You know, you talk to a new age GM or CBO, whatever title about, you know, some of these uh, like of what they're going to do in the off season or, you know, what's the move going to be, whatever. And, you know, we're just looking at holistic ways to improve our roster. We're not going to rule anything out. Dombrowski winter meetings. Dave, how do you see your off season going? We need a left-handed starter. We need a reliever who's 32 years old and pitches well on Wednesdays, and we need a righty outfielder named Chris Young. It's like, all right, that's we know, you know, like Thanks. just the exact. It makes it easy, right? There's no, uh, there's no debate. So when you look at, I'm not going to ask you if you wish he was still here because I think that's unfair and that's just like playing, you know, Monday morning quarterback. But are there any traits besides just being a go getter that you wish? Heim Bloom or Craig Breslow because it's starting to look like, you know, and it's not that it's starting to look like we kind of all know that Craig Breslow is supposed to operate the same way Heim Bloom is, except that he's supposed to actually be a trigger man. Uh, from what you've seen so far from Craig and what you saw from Heim Bloom, what is one trait that you wish that they had from like previous regimes that like they, they're just maybe missing to get a team to a next step? Yeah, I think, you know, when we judge those guys and we judge the GM or whatever title again, like it would be so much easier if they just logged out the GM title, but um, CBOs, POBOs, whatever. You got to climb is. the ladder somehow. That's right. I don't know what the next one's going to be. Baseball king. Um, the I think that you have to, like, think about the role of ownership, which I always come back to. Did Dave Dombrowski have the license to kill from ownership to go get a free agent and that Heim didn't, that's possible. You know, like the buck doesn't end with these guys. It doesn't stop there. It goes up another rung on the ladder. And I think people forget that sometimes. So, and they're in a position where they can't say that. So ultimately the, you know, the, the blame gets put on them where, you know, if Heim was told at the trade deadline, this is a hypothetical, I don't know. If Heim was told at the trade deadline, we can't add any salary whatsoever. We're at budget and that's your constraints. He's not going to come out and say, well, John Henry told me we're broke, you know? So he takes the blame for the only move being Luis Urias. That is way more possible than people give it credit for, I think. Um, going back to answer your question more directly, I think if there's one thing that 
Hahn got caught up in it was kind of that paralysis when he was trying to analyze if a move was going to be right without, you know, and having the, our North star is winning now and winning in the future and the, and the sustainability and trying to, you know, obviously keep, keep the farm, build the farm and also try to win when they were good, which was one year. Um, Dombrowski had a really good quote that stuck with me in an interview with Bob Nightingale in the summer of 2019 when he was, there was rumors that he, starting that he might get fired a year after you know leading them to a title. And I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it in front of me, um, but it was like he said to Bob, like, well, like, I thought the point was to win. Like, I basically saying, like, who cares that our farm system's in shambles? We won the World Series last year. We have a very good veteran team right now. Like, I thought the point was to win. I think every GM, every modern GM should have a little more of that in them. Chris, on the on the subject of ownership, too, I, I, I'm sure you were there and heard it in person, but the full throttle thing, like, I'm curious – your thoughts on that? Are we making too much of that? Because I, I watched the clip and he didn't, he didn't like pound the table and say like, "Oh yeah, we gotta, we're all in." Like it was kind of, he was pushed a little. Warner was pushed a little bit, and he was not really saying it. And then he kind of, like, uttered it. it like, should we be taking? Like, fans are really running with that one. Like, should we be mm-hmm. running with that as much as we are? Uh, I wasn't in that scrum because the way it works after that press conference is, Cora did a group. Warner did a group, Kennedy did a group, and, you know, we have to divide and conquer at Massachusetts, Livachusetts, so we had to go, and I got Cora, and uh, Sean went and, and talked to um, Warner. I mean, I think it was the right thing to say to get fans fired up, but you do have to back that up if you say that, or else it's, you know, a bumper sticker, a tagline, and all that. Um, you know, I think it's, uh, fans are right. If, if you say that, you have to you have to back it up somehow. Um, and again, the, the the answer to the question is really we don't know yet and if they haven't gone full throttle by february 13th that's another discussion to be had um but you know again outside of nola like there's nobody that really would have fit that bill for me and and otani notwithstanding because uh i you know baseball wise he didn't make a ton of sense all right i'll i'll take that for now i i i'm still hoping that there is some type of full throttle thing like i just dangling that is enough for me to be like it's going to happen it, you can't have what happened at the end of the year with attendance and expect that yeah. not to carry over especially right. if you don't end up acting on it um, i mean the way like he's cleaned up the margins a little bit he's adding interesting arms that he likes verdugo's time was done they're more functional with tyler o'neill who has upside um you know like the two really the two consequential moves with no offense to Criswell and Justin Slayton and the rest of those guys, Verdugo and O'Neill. Like that's and again, if if you look at the top free agents off the board, it's guys that probably wouldn't have made sense here anyway. Um I would feel like Jung Ho Lee wouldn't have fit. You know, guys that have gotten more than hundred million, you know, Sonny Gray probably wasn't gonna sign here anyway. Like it's it's I the calendar feels late, but this is a weird free agency and trade market because it's so regimented domino wise where Otani is going to happen and then Yamamoto is going to happen. And then I think the, the open market will really start. And then after that, the trade market will start, you know, and like until that actually starts rolling, you can't judge them. I think, as I said, fans are kind of resigned themselves to, well, we haven't gotten anybody yet, so it's not going to happen. We don't know. Um, so I, I think a wait and see approach, which is never good to tell a Red Sox fan to be patient, but here we are. So 
as we are closing in on the year, and, and this is kind of final questions, I, th- I think the boys have a couple more. Uh, Snell gets picked up somewhere. Or let's let's phrase it this way. It's either Snell, Yamamoto, or Montgomery that are the first domino to fall for the Red Sox as far as starters. Something glorious happens. It's a Christmas miracle. Giolito or Flaherty? Which one are you going with and why? Uh, Giolito, I, I just, I know that the Red Sox have liked him in years past as a trade candidate. And I know that he was a guy that was, as they were looking into uh, stuff over the summer and at the deadline, he was a guy that was talked about internally um, and a guy that pe- certain people in the organization were excited about. Um, and I think he has kind of the, the pedigree. Um, you know, we, we talked about this on our pod, but last year, and he, he put this on Instagram, or at least in part, but um, Giolito went through a really kind of rough divorce last year. Uh, and there's people who know him pretty well that say, that that was um, a big distraction, as I'm sure it would be in the middle of the season. I'm sure also getting traded like eight times probably was not, uh, you know, bouncing around Ohio and wherever else. He, I, his wife, and, well, so. not to cut you off, but his wife announced it during the home run derby, correct? It was during oh, a was super a, oh, weird yeah, time. That was weird. That was a, that was a ratings that. play. Um, yeah. So, but like, you know, that, that people have said that that might be a factor. And so I think people look at him and the, the metrics as a bounce back guy. I like him a lot as the number five starter. I think he's a, you know, to me, as I know, this is not super like, oh my God, Yamamoto or Kirby or whatever. To me, if they do Montgomery and Giolito, like that's a pretty good rotation. Those guys, you know, how to pitch, they've been in big spots. I know Giolito has been up and down throughout his career. Um, you know, those two are, are kind of the most logical to me. Flaherty, um, as a very talented talented guy as well um so you know i don't think that would be you know a, a terrible terrible signing but i think you know obviously they need somebody better than those two first and foremost do you think giolito's getting like a full because i've seen as as short as a year and i've seen like four years in 70 like when you say he could be the five what what kind of deal are you envisioning that you think would be worth it I think the the range of outcomes on him is very wide because there's some teams that are really really high on him. Um, you know, four for seventy is a, a lot. I think he's kind yeah, of the guy that makes it makes more sense to me to like he's the guy you sign to a deal with an opt out after one that's effectively a one year deal and he tries to re- reset the market. You know, one of those Gaussman or um, Radon type situations. Uh, he's probably going to San Francisco like those guys and then cash in. Um, but you know, like that to me probably you know makes some sense um and uh, you know a guy like that with you know first a very top prospect and first round pick pedigree and that a lot of teams like they don't often sign that four-year deal at a low aav at this point in your first test of free agency so i would guess he'd get a shorter term deal you get that guy for two years he turns it around um you know maybe maybe that that's a a pretty shrewd move so I, i i like him i think it's possible i like him a lot too all right, question. So, just in your personal opinion, where do you think the biggest pitching acquisition comes from the Red Sox via the free agent market or the trade market, and kind of why? Um, I think the trade the trade market because I think that in a departure from recent years, they have a better thing. They have a better package and a better offer than some other teams can do. Um, especially if you headline it with Meyer or Anthony and, you know, like 
are they going to get outbid on Yamamoto with some team spending 300 or 310 million, whatever it is, whatever Carlos Baerga tells us, probably. Uh, might a team outbid them for Montgomery and Snell and all that? Maybe. But I find it hard to believe that, you know, teams with a prospect package, uh, the Red Sox are going to have, have a really attractive one to offer. And I think a big part of that is these are not Breslow's guys. They are Heim's guys. There's no attachment that Heim might have had. Um, that's kind of part of the whole fresh eyes thing where, you know, Breslow can look at Marcelo Meyer and as the rest of us can, probably with some better data that they have in the internal systems there. But um, Or he can look at Roman Anthony and, you know, he wasn't in the room when he got drafted and hasn't seen this whole progression that Heim might have seen. So, you know, I, I, I just – when you look at the – and people have given me shit on Twitter for this for selective sampling, which is insane. If you look at, like, the top 20 prospects in the system – there's like 18 pitchers. I mean, there's like 18 position players and two pitchers. And like, you got to balance that out at some point. Um, and especially with like how low the pitchers are on that right. list, too, is concerning. They've got you like know, one like, starter in the entire like upper minors. It's uh, yeah, right. who they just got. I mean, Wickelman's nice and Perales mm-hmm. is nice, but we're not, they could be relievers and nobody would be shocked, I think. Yeah. And I think that was an underrated part of what the last two years have really brought. I mean, Bayo looks good and Crawford probably exceeded expectations as a guy who might be able to fit into your rotation long-term. But if you look at the upper level pitching that the collapse everywhere, Whitlock and Houck last year were a massive reason the team did not perform to expectations. They had a lot riding on them. They were both hurt. And, you know, I know they both went through a lot, Houck getting hit in the face and Whitlock getting hurt over and over losing his brother is very unfortunate year for both of them. But, you know, plainly they did not give the Red Sox really anything. Winkowski was a guy they liked as a starter. As a reliever, he had a great year, but less value, obviously. And then if you look at the the kind of the, the guys they had as their top pitching prospects at Worcester, who they wanted to really come in and be depth, Murphy, now a reliever. Walter, now a reliever with basically no prospect value at all. Like people looked at Walter a year ago like he was the next you know, Steve Carlton, and now he's like 27 and it was not good in the majors. And Drowen who they didn't, you know, who they kept Zach Weiss on the 40-man roster over. No offense to Zach Weiss, who seems like a very nice guy, but, I mean, it's just those, like, five, six pieces having such a – taking such a step back, I think, is why they need to go and and do what, you know, go get George Kirby, right, or something like that. So, Chris, this is something that's been talked about uh, locally, nationally, internationally. What's the update on your ice cream status for next year. Are you back on the train or are you staying away from the ice cream? Uh, it was a get healthy tactic. Didn't work. Didn't take. Um, so ice cream, and, we're back on the ice cream. That's what that no, tells me. No, oh. I mean, it's, 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 not, it's, well, it's not like it's I, the thing is that it's just, it, I'm not a sweets guy, uh, believe it or not. And I was never really like a huge, like I don't snack on candy or like baked goods or stuff. It just, it became like I was eating it so I could take the picture, you know, like. I, <laughs> I, and then you just have that. You're just like, like, I guess I got to eat this ice cream now. Yeah. Well, so shit, man. <laughs> counterpoint is that I don't take pictures of IPAs and put them on Twitter. So. I guess there's not an excuse there, but I, I think like, you know, I was a lot of times just basically taking it like, Oh shit, I got to take the picture. Oh, well look at that. It's a huge ice cream in front of me. Let me eat this in two seconds, you know? So now I thought it went really well. I had a lot of fans. Um, 
who donated to the Jimmy Fund and to the Pan Mass Challenge, and I delivered them an ice cream right before first pitch. There was a lot of days where I tweeted it, and I had no takers because it was 15 degrees out, even in, like, June, and it was pouring, and no one wanted that. Um, I'm sure there were some September Yankee games, though, that were packed that people would love to yeah, crowd race. I'm screaming out the press box window. Anybody? Anybody? Um, so, you know, it's... They also changed the machine. It's not as a, as good as it was a couple years ago. So I would guess that I'm going to keep doing the uh, bringing it down to fans. People don't believe this at all, and I, it's completely true. I ate one on opening day, swore it off, said I'd bring it to fans for the rest of the year. Again, it was hit and miss throughout the year. when I wasn't going to have another one until the last day of the year. And I, I game one and game 162 are my only two of the year, and I dropped zero pounds. <laughs> that's better than gaining though i was gonna say you didn't gain it's, anything so it's net yeah. because, you know what because once you hit my uh, the the ripe old age of like 27 28 which i am now it is kind of like gaining because you start losing the ability to drop it so zero is kind of like plus 10 but again this is you know i'll, I'll break news i will break news on the show if you have a Ooh. breaking news siren uh, I am that's all in an, that's... in an effort in an effort to show up at spring training in the best shape of my life. I am undergoing Achilles surgery because I have, oh my uh, god Ooh. I have short short Achilles and that will be the first step in the transformation. Wait, you have a short Achilles? Like you were I do. born? Yeah. What does that even mean? Achilles? It's just t- tight. It hurts to walk. Like it hurts. To, it's not. It's not comfortable. That's Has awesome. it always been that way, or is this like a recent development? That's all I, I, uh, I learned to walk on my toes and, uh, like there's no like root cause of it. It's just, I walked on my toes as a kid and it, oh my God, me too. Its, me too. Me too. Well, it rears its ugly head at about 27, 28 when oh my God. it's uh, the calves get super tight. So I gotta, I gotta have them, have them, uh, gotta get snipped. That's Holy crazy. Boy. Crap. I, I do the same thing. I always I always have people ask me, like, why do you walk like that? Why do you walk on your toes? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm, I'm happy to find I, I know. Most dudes boat. grow up and they get something huh. else snipped. Uh, Adaptive Chris. shortening, I mean, like, baby. Not bad. One, one thing at a time, Coop. <laughs> Crap, Chris. I Yo, think I'll I, tell you guys. Oh, man. I'm I, I learned to walk. I learned to walk on my toes because when I was a kid, I would wake up like I was obsessed with like backyard baseball and shit like MVP baseball 05. Like I would like on Saturdays. You were you were you were tiptoeing for that consciously. This is subconscious. So your calves yeah, must no, be still nice. totally conscious. I would like wake up at like 5 a.m. and my parents wouldn't want me to be awake. And I would like tiptoe through the house. We had like really creaky floors, so I had to learn to That's walk a, on my toes. Right. Yeah. See, I just That's do nice it. Choice. Yeah. And my yeah, calves, my calves, calves are jacked. Chris, when you get the Achilles surgery. I know a great physical therapist. Nice yeah. Plug. Yeah. <laughs> great. Crazy crap. Yeah, Doc, what is it, uh, Jim? What, what's his name on Twitter? God, no, 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 no plug. No plug. I'm plugging myself here. I'm plugging myself. That's not where he was going with myself. that. No, I know. Crap. Well, hey, now I'm like a little bit nervous. I just turned 29, so I'm, I, I, I might have to get Achilles surgery soon. Well, but you're say, like, uh, it's, it's not, it's not great. But uh, you know, my, uh, you know, I'm, I'm excited to walk normally through Fenway and just turn heads this year. You know, like, oh, you're going to be strutting to have the heels of my shoes get dirty is going to be quite the scene. Okay. Here's the <laughs> well, I mean, like, at least your shoes are like protected from the clay. Uh, yeah, or they well, were. You know, so I think I only do it 49, 49.99 Cole Hans can't buy themselves, you know, so. Ooh. Um, wow. Chris, one thing. So, uh, with the ice cream jokes aside, uh, there was a charity component to it. I know you do some charity. You actually donated to my charity. 
a few years ago with the, the baseball card uh, thing that you did. I don't know if you remember that, mm -hmm. but um, what are the charities you're working with? I'm just curious. Um, I don't work with any charities. Uh, I just, I've actually, everything you've ever seen me do that auction during COVID and stuff, that is all, um, I'm funding a house I'm building in North Carolina. So that's all been a scam the whole time, but no, it's, uh, I don't, <laughs> so I Chris Catello foundation. <laughs> yeah. It's just, I've run a Ponzi scheme on the name of charity for four years. Uh, no, Not you and like a bunch of other people. I don't work. That's right. I don't work directly with any, anything I've ever done. Like I've never, uh, really partnered. I think the big thing was that COVID auction where I was just sitting there and, uh, had a lot of, I was home at my parents' house. Um, and, just saw the autographs I had gotten as a kid and was like, yeah, I should sell these on eBay. That was my first thought while I'm home and make a boatload of money. And then uh, I looked on eBay and saw what they were going for and was like, yeah, probably a waste of time. Maybe if I auction them off, people would pay a lot more. And they did. People like would pay hundreds of dollars for, you know, um, a card that you could probably get on eBay for $5 just because they knew their donation was going to a food bank. And so once the first couple things started going, I was like, I, it was a test run on Easter Sunday that year, and I was like, oh, Greater Boston Food Bank, who wants to sign Adrian Beltate card? And it went for like 150 bucks or something. And, it, and like Cora started tweeting at me, um, donated some signed cleats, and I was like, I have something here, and this is what, what I'm going to do for the next two and a half months. Um, and I was going to like just a couple autographs that I didn't really know if I wanted, and it became very evident very early on that I was going to sell every single autograph I'd ever gotten. Uh, sold the whole book, everything. Um, and I got a lot of people across, uh, you know, athletes and different people to, to pitch in. Uh, and we, over that time, that whole thing, the different charities, we've got 60,000. And the cool part was that I never handled any of the money. Uh, I didn't ever really go directly with the charities. There was nothing like that. It would just be, you know, okay, this is a framed Johnny Bench picture that I could sign at a card show. Someone's going to buy it for $300. Okay, send me a receipt of a donation to the Cincinnati Food Bank. And that's how it worked. And so with the with the ice cream and some of the bobbleheads and stuff from Twitter, um, basically Jimmy Fun's kind of the go-to. I don't know anybody over there. I just tell people to do it, and they send me a receipt. If anyone's ever forged a receipt, you're a horrible person. I don't think that's happened. Um, and, you know, Pan Mass Challenge and some of the different things the Red Sox are associated with. But it's the only, you know, like for for out of a dumb burner Twitter account 10 years ago and, you know, writing about a sport and sometimes the shit feels trivial uh, how much we all care about it i know there's a lot more than sports but like i have a platform right like i have sixty thousand twitter followers i used to think that was cool and now i realize it's fifty eight thousand bots only fans bots and my parents um which will that'll that'll be the only time i ever say only fans and my parents in the same sentence i hope um, <laughs> and uh the i just decided like i want to just try to use these 60,000 people for something beyond stupid banter about Lucas Giolito. So that's kind of, and I don't eat the ice cream too. So it worked out. Well, Hey man, I'm, I'll tell you right now, you helped us uh, get a lot of food that we donated to a uh, homeless community in downtown Boston. So appreciate you for that. Yeah, I was a, I mean, that was, I never really had more fun doing anything than that thing, that auction, which I, you know, like I was at home, my parents' house, um, my, mom and dad and sister like santa's elves packaging things and mailing them out to people it became this whole like family business during covid so i know it was a horrible time for the world but i have really fond memories of just that whole thing coming together and working with my family on it and um wouldn't want another pandemic to do it again but i did have like it was cool to see twitter come together and see you know all these people come together and 
really do a lot. Um, I should do another one of those auctions for, for something, but uh, the Red Sox keep me so busy with all these moves, you know, it's hard. Oh, it's just tough to find time. Yeah. Well, we could feed people, but Roberto Perez, two time <laughs> world winner. You know? so. The Wilson thing, too. Wilson, defensive best guy there is, or whatever the award right. is. Yeah, you won that yeah, short. Uh, you your 60K followers know it's also good. You get to spread your love of uh, Duke football and hoops. I'm curious. That's I know right. you're always hate, you're always hate watching uh, Drake May. You got three of us on this show that are obviously rooting for the tank, and then you got Coop up there in the top no, left. Who's, I root for wins. I'm sorry, I'm a winner. I don't, he's I don't know what to tell you. He's rooting for wins. He's rooting for wins. I'm curious. I want your Drake May scouting report, and if he got in the ring with Daniel Jones, how long is it taking Daniel Jones to knock him out? Yeah, Drake May um, is. He came to America's finest university on the Harvard of the South with a very uh, a lot of hype because he was a five star committed to Bama, and he flipped to Carolina, which I don't think people up here know. I'm going to be his official like hype man until they draft him. So um, he is from the first family of Carolina athletics. His dad, Mark played football and was a quarterback for the heels in the eighties and was pretty good. I was not a fan then or alive. Um, and then in the, he had Mark has four sons and, uh, three of them went to Carolina and were, uh, athletes. Uh, the older brother, Luke was, um, a star on the basketball team about five, six years ago, he hit uh, the game winning shot against Kentucky in the elite eight, send them to the final four in 17. And then became like a really, really good kind of stretch four as a senior played in the G league. And then the uh, two other brothers, one was a reliever, the university of Florida won a national championship there. So those two brothers that won national championships in college, then there's Luke. I mean, then there's uh, Drake. And then the fourth brother, Bo as a walk-on who had a lot of injuries on Carolina, but they're like the most athletic kind of first family of Carolina. Um, and there was a lot of hype around his recruitment. Again, they flipped him from Bama um, and he, uh, was last year kind of came together uh, really one weapon and Josh Downs and still found a way to like lead them to start nine and one. And then they looked down, they realized they were Carolina football and lost the last five games of the season, um, including the holiday ball to Bo Nix, but he played well in that game. Uh, and this year with like no weapons except for Tez Walker, who came through halfway through the season, you know, can make any throw. Um, the reason the team is bad is because the defense can never figure it out under any circumstances. Um, but kind of your, you know, super gamer, super athletic, uh, looks the part, as they say, as your uh, pocket passer, tall, um, handsome. And okay. I would say, like, you know, there's um, just kind of makeup-wise, and this I th thought was really cool, uh, you know, he had last year with the NIL and Transfer Portal and everything, he had, like, 15 20 big time offers and uh, one of the offers someone leaked out that he was offered a five million dollar nil deal to go to a big time sec school uh, i'm not sure if that was you know bama had some quarterback questions and stuff people thought it might have been them to get him to flip back after one year uh, and he said you know carolina is my home i'm not making much nil but this is where my family is and like i want to see this through until i'm drafted so i would have taken the money as much as i love the school but um i thought that was cool and like I'm completely out on the pats right now. Like I'm not even watching unless I'm gambling on it. Um, and I, that talk about getting me back in all the way back in that they draft him. I'm not, I'm not sold on Caleb Williams. I don't really, you know, I've never really jived well with crocodile tears in my mom's arms. So 
uh, Drake May is, is the guy who's going to turn around the franchise. So they're going to make it's. Uh, was Mitch know. Trubisky a Tar Heel? Oh yeah. yeah, but he he was never good really in college. Oh, okay. So okay. That okay. was he. Uh, he was eight and five as a starter, and we were shocked that like that was he was in my my year, um, along with Zach Gallon, I might add. Um, so future Red Sox, that'll be great. Um, Trubisky was like they were eleven and one in 2015 and he was the backup quarterback and they literally had they if they beat clemson in the acc championship game they would have probably gone to the the cfp and a team that had legitimate top 10 national championship kind of hopes didn't think trubisky was good enough to start and then a year later he was inexplicably the number two overall pick in the draft so i don't mean i never figured out how that happened i don't i mean it's the bears the the reason is the bears that is the reason But I don't want any uh, any links between the Trubisky NFL failure and Drake May because Drake May actually, you know, is a prospect. And Trubisky was like a – I don't think there was anybody else good in that draft except the Mahomes guy or whatever, the guy who yells uh, about so the refs. Saying no to Saban, which is Bill Belichick's friend. So you are rooting so hard for Bill Belichick to get fired. <laughs> uh, I don't know how I feel about it. I, I like – I my my perfect said they should go youthful and hire Mac Brown away from Carolina also 72 years old. Um, just bring know, the I, whole I, just bring the whole program up here. Exactly. Yeah. You give up 75 points a game. It's awesome. Yeah, uh, I was going to say the program that you just said wasn't, wasn't <laughs> Yeah, I mean they they just this year like last year they were 9 and 1 lost the last 5. This year they were 6 and 0. Oh. They get in the top 10. They they just completely shit their pants every time. It's, it's great. Um, it was a basketball school. Yeah, but my I want I want Vrabel pretty badly. I think he'd be great. You know, a guy who knows this place as well as anybody. The guy who has NFL head coach experience, he has instant respect. You know, like he's part of the family, but also has done his own thing. Where like you're not just taking an assistant. Uh, I think he'd be excellent. So Vrabel Vrabel May 2024. I will I, uh, I will uh, mail in my vote right now. Vrabel, right. did he change your mind? Cooper, you, are you he, still he kind of sold me. Scoop? When he brought in Vrabel, Even I, was, after I started this? visualizing that, and I was like, oh, that's that's kind of nice. It's I enjoy cool that. Though, Four Chris. L's, Coop. Like, there's actually, there's actually, like, a pretty pretty good chance that May is the quarterback for the Patriots. It's not like a pipe yeah. dream. It's, like, it's pretty right. real, especially if they keep losing at this incredible rate. Like, just keep, just keep losing, baby. Let's go. Get these L's. Yeah. Well, they need mm-hmm. to lose – they need to lose just enough so someone takes Caleb Williams before them in case, you know, he's he's who they like, which I hope not. Um, that well, you know, there's all, with the media there's all, in New England. Yeah. Oof, and there's also, I mean, a lot of smoke about Daniels too. So, um, you know, like there, I just, it's, I, I'm obviously, you know, rooting hard for it. I, I think it'll be pretty good. You know, you get, um, it's, that would be, you know, I would be completely. I'm already insufferable about the whole thing, but um, you know, it would not, it would be good. To, you know what? It balances out New England sports a little bit in that regard because the best athlete in town went to a safety school, so people forget that Jason Tatum. Oh, yes. Oh, so, shots. It's the truth. Uh, and final question, and we'll let you go. Uh, you brought up, you know, what it's been like starting from a burner, coming all the way to where you are right now. And uh, you talk about kind of the influence that you do have, even though you poo-poo it from time to time. And I'm more so curious if you were to take any piece that you have written over the last X amount of years, and you were to take that to high school, Chris, uh, what do you think he would be most proud of? Like from like one singular article where he would be like, that is the coolest shit in the world. 
yeah, I think when I, you know, to answer that, like, extremely simply, I think it's no question on the um, Darren Duran mental health feature that I did last year. That got a lot of headlines, and uh, for good reason. You know, I just happened, you know, like, that was really eye-opening to a lot of people in the Red Sox organization about the issue in a way that I didn't think was possible. Like, there are blind spots even for guys on your own team. He and, – and the interesting thing about that is that, you know, at that time, Jaron and I didn't have – and I don't wouldn't say we do now. Um, not a particularly close relationship. It wasn't like I knew this was something that was, like, an issue um, and that was kind of boiling under the surface. But when you're around and you see how dejected he was after bad games, especially, you know, some of the more public things that played out. I wasn't there the night that he lost the ball in center or when he got into it in Kansas City. But, you know, like, see how he reacts to that and see how he is – um, like just, I decided to go up to him and say, you know, like, how is this whole experience? You take this so seriously. How has it been on you mentally? And he just, you know, like, even though there's a microphone in his face and he didn't know me from really any other reporter, just really opened up about it. Um, and you know, the quotes speak for themselves of, and I, I just, I let it all simmer inside me and just sit, go home all depressed. And I don't want to bother my teammates with my problems. And I think, you know, in a way it was probably cathartic for him to, to get that off his chest. I know that, you know, when I talked to Haim about it at the time, he was like, wow, he really, he really said that. Like, we got to get a, a grasp on this. And they made, you know, I think that was a huge reason for why he, you know, not like I'm not saying I, you know, catalyzed the whole thing, but a reason uh, him opening up and him being clear about it was a huge reason that he had such a good year because he was able to play freely, play as himself, um, you know, have the kind of the mental health um, help that he needed. And, uh, it kind of opened up, you know, like a, you know, as, uh, again, as I said, not to, not to poo-poo it, but there is a lot of trivial stuff on a daily basis, um, you know, even trade talks or something like grand scheme, that stuff doesn't always matter. Or let's look at this guy, you know, why this guy's FIP suggests that he's going to have a better year, stuff that very inside baseball. When you do a feature like that, um, or like, you know, Tanner Houck talking about the adoption charity in his hometown or those types of things where you humanize these guys and really, you know, kind of talk about the more important stuff. I think that always pays off more. So that one I think will be tough to beat just because, you know, it made and it became such a huge, huge, huge talking point around here for a few days. Um, some people didn't handle it well. And I, I've lost a lot of respect for people who like people went on the radio and said, you know, lighten up. Do we have to get you a puppy? And people just having no sympathy at all. Um, so I remember that I, if there, I don't keep receipts on much, but I remember the people that did that because I was super shitty, but you know, I just think that, um, I think it helped him. So that was good. And, uh, those are the types of stories that, you know, you kind of know when you have it, you know, it's something special and something different than the you know other eight that we write on a daily basis at Mass Lab, but it was, uh, that'll be hard to beat. Awesome. Chris, thank you for joining us. Thank you for giving us more than an hour. It's been great. We've learned so much. We've made friends. It's a pleasure. You've had a journey. Uh, if people want to get in touch with you, I, there's a certain way that you can do that through Mass Live. How do, how do we do that? Yeah, there's a uh, a lot of ways. Obviously, Twitter, Chris Cotillo, not Cotillo, like that tattooed guy with the overrated podcast says. Um, <laughs> uh, li- listeners redacted or something. Um, <laughs> but it's it's just Chris Cotillo, one T, two L's, and then uh, Fenway Rundown Podcast with Sean McAdam. He will be running the show next week alone while I am off. And then... Uh, the Mass Live Insider Text Program, which we just launched, which thank you for the opportunity to plug this company initiative. Uh, the 
we are basically because Twitter can be such a cesspool. This is, I think, a pretty interesting thing. Um, we're giving fans the opportunity to text in this exclusive subscriber chat. Um, and we have a portal where we get all the questions. That's how we get the mailbag questions for our pod. Um, 14 day free trial. And then it's five bucks a month. And people like a lot of people that are signing up, like love it. And they feel like they can cut out all the BS from Twitter. Um, you know, it's, I, I was honestly skeptical of it at the beginning because it seems like extra work at, at work, which it is, but like, it's really good questions. It's good conversation. It's a really cool way to connect with, you know, us and, you know, we send stuff out on that that we don't send on Twitter, you know, exclusive stuff. I've said, if I ever break a signing again, which for some reason, dry spell, uh, it'll go first on the subscriber text and then second on, on oh, Twitter. So that Jeff that passing, around. like that mm. Jeff passing, like credit to Chris Cotillo via, via live text. That's, that's going right. to hit hard. Yeah, though. I mean, if I can't get Cooper Criswell in my own backyard, am I ever going to get one again? You know, people are asking. <laughs> well, that has been an awesome time, Chris. Thank you again for for joining us hope you have a great holiday season hopefully we can catch up with you again before spring training and hopefully there's something that happens before spring yeah. training thanks well. guys the next the next mass live cycle i want to be first not third <laughs> yep <laughs> <laughs>